0: Good morning, I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Sarah Tomlinson, author of Good Girl, a memoir. Uh, Sarah is uh well Sarah's a writer. She splits her time between Los Angeles and Brooklyn. She has more than a decade of experience as a journalist, music critic, writer, and editor. And she has ghostwritten nine books, including two uncredited New York Times bestseller. Uh Sarah currently writes journalism, novels, memoirs, screenplays, T V pilots, and personal essays. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Sarah good morning Catherine. it's great to be here well we have a lot to talk about obviously and you are um a very prolific writer Um, good girl a memoir it's about a relationship with your father it's a father-daughter relationship book your father and you and you're growing up Um so let's start why write about your relationship with your father i mean i know it was it was unique and i don't want to say a love-hate relationship but can i say that um,
1: Probably more of a love and longing relationship. Love
0: and longing. Okay, go ahead.
1: Yes, well, I just um, loved my dad so much, and I kind of thought of him as like a touring rock star, because he was not in the home. My mom had left him when I was two, because he was a compulsive gambler, and she just realized that it was no environment to raise a child. Um, And she took me up to Midcoast, Maine, and she and some friends bought 100 acres of land and essentially started a commune. And it was really idyllic. We built our own house. We had, you know, passive solar heating and chopped our own firewood, and she baked all our bread, and we had an organic garden, you know, long before Whole Foods, we were doing all of that. (laughs)
0: So this but is 70s, very 70s, very late 60s, very early 70s kind of growing up, hippie kind of lifestyle, right?
1: Yeah, it was more the late 70s and early 80s, but it was very much that ethos. It was sort of part of the back-to-the-land movement, which happened in the 60s and 70s. You're absolutely right.
0: Okay. I have to pre- I just want to interject because I'm from Maine originally. So, oh, I didn't um, realize yeah. that. I know, so I thought I would just kind of give you a... Uh, little bit of information about that and grew up in Maine. But anyway, okay, so you, this is a farmhouse in Freedom, Maine. I guess it is, what, 1976? Yeah, um, I was
1: born in Freedom um, at home in this farmhouse in 1976. And then my mom and dad had briefly gone down to Boston because there really wasn't much work up in rural Maine, and my dad was driving a cab in Boston. But primarily he was driving the cab to support his track habit. And, uh, you know, my mom found herself in that unfortunate situation that young mothers sometimes do, just realizing that she had to really look out for herself and her child first and sacrifice the relationship for our well-being. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for her and the courage that she showed to make that uh decision. It just left me, again, I think longing is really the best word, with this desire to be reconnected with my dad. You know, I had no conception of why he
0: wasn't with me. I just wanted to be with him. Well, did she explain it to you? I mean, did you have these, you know, I mean, these kind of like feelings of abandonment? You really just had no idea who he was and what he was and what he was about. I mean, did you have any understanding? Because you were really young. I was Um, really young. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, it's interesting
1: because... I certainly grew up, as I got older, with children who had a parent who maybe had a drinking problem, and I think that was a little bit more uh, understood, even though probably there was more of a stigma at that time and people didn't talk about it as much as they maybe do now. But I think with gambling, it just was sort of this nebulous addiction. I mean, she knew it was clearly a compulsive behavior. Like, he obviously had no control over it, but I don't think she really knew how to explain it to a little girl. And um, she also was very careful never to say anything negative about my dad. You know, she really didn't want to poison my relationship with him. And I think, you know, he made a lot of How did she do that?
0: How, do, yes. how, how was she able to do that? Because that's a really tough thing to do. I mean, here she is raising this um, you know her baby her young daughter and you know I mean she must have had a lot of I mean I don't want to project this stuff onto your mother but you know rage and anger and why aren't you here and why aren't you helping and not to like sort of connect with you in a way that would impart some of those feelings that she was having how did she do that or, Um,
1: I mean I think she came from sort of this stoic background you know this sort of like Presbyterian farm culture where you sort of do your work and, and you know, uh, don't complain. Um, and I think also, you know, she had been with my dad for a number of years before she left, and I think she just had gotten the picture by that point. You know, I think for me it took much, much longer, uh, you know, well into my late 30s to actually eventually understand my dad's limitations. But I think she she kind of got that he wasn't going to change, you know, in a, in a noticeable way. And, He always maintained that he wanted to have a relationship with me and that he was trying to have a relationship with me, and uh, so I think that she was, you know, trying to, I guess, protect me from her anger and not estrange my dad any further and just sort of hoping for the best, you know.
0: Because that's a tough job to do. I mean, as a social worker, and I've worked with many divorce or divorcing couples, and, boy, that's one of the big issues. That's why I'm sort of focusing on that, because yeah. she was able to protect you from that. Uh, but it, she also had a boyfriend, so she had another a significant other adult.
1: Exactly. Who, so my, yeah. my stepfather um, had been her boyfriend in college, and they had briefly broken up while my mom was with my dad and had me. And, um, you know, she really was behind this idea of going to Maine and really supported this idea of having like a, a better healthier lifestyle um, and my father was not able to do that so when she left him and uh, you know bought this property with some friends she uh, brought my stepfather into the plan and he happened to be a builder and he was really excited by the idea so they had a very um, compatible relationship and not only were they in love and did they, you know, have a good marriage, but they also had this shared dream for this lifestyle that, you know, not everyone would really be into. So,
0: how, Sarah, how did you respond to him or react to him? Because here's your stepfather, you're longing for your real father, and then this other man comes into the picture, and, and um, so you as a young girl, what was your relationship with him or how did you feel about him
1: Well, unfortunately, I felt like to really let my stepfather in would be disloyal to my father. Um, So I just, I could see that he did a lot for my mom. And so I think we sort of both adored my mom and kind of left it at that for the first years of my life. Um, And, you know, I, I do also say in the book that, like, my father, um, when he wasn't coming to visit me, which he didn't really. I mean, he only saw me about eight times from when I was two to when I was 15. But he sent me so a lot I of letters. like in
0: the book, he says he's coming, but he doesn't come, or there's always uh, there are reasons, you know, those kind of broken promises. Yes, and that was, I think, probably the most damaging thing to me. You know, I
1: have had friends who have been children of divorce. Obviously, there were a lot of divorces happening in the 70s and 80s, but. Uh, some of them would only see their dad once a month, and that was fine. I mean, maybe they missed him, but they were okay with it. They knew what to expect, and then he came, and they had that relationship. And with me, it was really this constant dangling of the carrot, you know, next weekend, next month, you know, when I can get the money together, when I can get a car. And um, I really was very loyal to my dad, even to my own detriment. You know, I just believed in him more than I believed in anything else, and uh, My dad would write me these letters, and and that's the other thing about my dad, which um, I hope I did get across in the book, is he's really a wonderful character. I mean, he's well-read, he's charismatic, he's, you know, traveled across the country and um, just has a lot of ideas about culture and, and mysticism and life, and so he's pretty good company, and he would write these wonderful letters, but often he would sign them, Love John. Instead of love, dad. And then I had Craig, who was my stepfather. And I say that in the book, you know, I I didn't want a John or a Craig. I wanted a dad. And I really thought my dad was going to be, um, sort of, returned to that place eventually. I wasn't sure how it was going to happen, but I was convinced that it would happen.
0: Well, that dangling carrot that you're talking about isn't mm-hmm. that? That's kind of like very um typical of that personality you know the yep. addictive personality yep in char- char- right i mean charming and um i want to be there but i can't be there and and just kind of like i don't want to say sucking you in but it seems to me and just in reading the book there's a piece of that and he in you know even given that he's a, a smart man a well traveled man a well read man but still his ability to have a relationship is very different than than that and Um, So I asked you about your stepfather, and then we kind of brushed over it a little bit. (laughs) So (laughs) I want to go back to that um, because I think it's really important. I mean, and I think your book is important because there are many people maybe not finding themselves or families in the exact same situation, but in terms of the family dynamics, fairly similar, and I think we can learn a lot from your book. But you said, one thing you just said, you said, well, even though you felt like you would, like with your stepfather, that you would be kind of – untrue to your real father, if you Mm -hmm. became close to your stepfather, but you both loved your mother, and that was kind of the thing that connected you, Mm -hmm. um, which is really a positive way of sort of being able to kind of, I guess, negotiate this your family situation at a young age. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you aware that that's what you were doing?
1: I think that I was. I mean, as much as I was sort of obsessed with my father, um, my mother was really – She was beautiful, and she was, um, you know, very uh, sort of the earth mother ideal of that time in terms of baking the bread and making me homemade granola and always out in the garden. And so she just was very nurturing. She taught me to read at a very young age, which I was immediately drawn to and which brought us closer together because it was something we both loved to do. And so I think, you know, I could just see that my stepfather was helping my mom, and so... I was glad for that, you know, and so I don't know how sophisticated my understanding of it was, of course, but I think I kind of appreciated that he was there for her and definitely as I got older um, and he and I did have some uh, tensions that that really came to a head, I always was aware like, well, at least he's there for her, you know, and uh, I appreciated
0: that for sure. And can we talk more about also the context? I mean, you, you were on a um, a farm with other families and other children, um, yeah. and then you so with as you say, your mother baking bread and kind of like back to the earth kind of thing. so and there was that, but then you were living in Maine in a community too, and you had to connect to the community, and that was kind of unique or odd or different. So how mm-hmm. did that work? Because here you are on this kind of commune, um, and how did the commune relate to the rest of the the, the town? Well,
1: um, we didn't relate <laughs> that well to the rest of the town, because even in the late 70s and 80s, um, there was sort of this idea in Maine, which you probably are familiar with having grown up there, this yeah. sort of idea of being from away. And we were definitely from away, literally, and then also in our ideas. You know, we didn't necessarily dress like the other people in our community which was a very rural community we were about eight miles from the nearest town where there was you know a grocery store and a movie theater and that sort of thing um and you know we sort of looked and 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 acted like we were coming out of like berkeley or woodstock or you know sort of more of like a, a progressive uh neighborhood um and it took some time for the the locals to sort of accept us Um, But the community was wonderful. I mean, we each had our own house, so it wasn't like a commune where, you know, everyone uh, shares one living space. Um, But the adults did help each other build their homes, all of the men. Uh, except for one were builders, and one of them also was a stonemason. So it literally was, you know, a a situation of having house raisings and and helping each other, and there were a lot of potlucks. And I think it's sort of the ideal, especially, you know, now as everyone is finding themselves so isolated and so strapped for time. You know, my mom knew that there were um, three other women around in their homes, Uh, who had different work schedules, but there was always at least one adult around, and that if I went over there, you know, it would be kind of healthy snacks and and educational TV, and they had the same beliefs as my mom. So it was sort of like having three extra moms, which was really sweet, and the other kids were, you know, exactly my age. You know, basically there's probably like a five-year age gap between all of the kids on the land when I was growing up, so it it was pretty sweet.
0: Yeah, so you had family. I mean, there was family, and as you say, three moms. That could be good yeah. or or a little bit difficult to handle. Um, yeah. Yeah. But there was always somebody there for you. Do you exactly. think that kind of obviously eased the kind of maybe the pain or the longing for your father because you did have a family, and and not just your mother's husband or your stepfather, but you had a a really extended family um, always available to you.
1: I did and you know, that that was something that was really interesting as I went back and wrote the book because uh in addition to, to sort of my land family on the land, um, you know, my mother's family was very active in my life. I didn't have a chance to, to put that in the book. And then also as I do write in the book, my father's mother took an interest in me. I think in part because she felt sort of guilty that her son had um had really abandoned me. But I think it's sad for me, or it was when I was writing, because I realized there was a lot of love in my life and a lot of support. And I just was very stubborn. I didn't want it. I wanted my dad. And I just wish, uh, you know, as I looked back, I wished that I had um, not taken myself out of community so much in in
0: search of my dad you know i so where do you this... think that came from sarah like I, what you're saying is you re, kind of resisted all of this support you still it pushed it away a little bit and you you could have embraced it more because you just wanted your dad and that longing for your dad just kind of took precedent is that what you're saying yeah that's definitely a good way to put it and 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 i think you
1: know that's part of the reason for the book is I've been talking about it a lot as I've been going out and meeting other women who've had, you know, sort of similar experiences or for whatever reason, they did not have a relationship with their dad or, or had a a bad relationship with their dad. And there's just this special thing about dads and daughters and, and this way that the, daughter's self-esteem is tied to her dad and and his presence or his absence in her life. And, you know, I consider myself a feminist. It's 2015. I don't want to be ruled by, like, Freud or, like, you know, just this idea that everything is uh, based on sort of old um, psychological models. But I think there's some truth to it, you know, and that was really an impetus for the book was sort of why do daughters need dads and what happens when they don't have them.
0: And what about your dad? I mean, is this, was this, were you longing for dad as he really was? Or just this, it's kind of like you're touching on this a little bit and talk, that you, that was that pic, you know, the dad on the wall, the picture on the wall of dad. Because that dad really didn't exist. The dad that you're talking about was a, a gambler, first of all, and driving a taxi cab and unreliable. And, you know, if you just looked at on paper what he did, that really wasn't the dad you were longing for. You know, it's the one, it's the, you know, that picture, that uh, photograph on the wall of the perfect dad.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I did have a fantasy about who my dad was that wasn't true, but I think it's sort of a common human tendency that like, you know, some people do it with that 10 pounds they need to lose or some people do it with that new job they want to get, you know, everything will be great when that happens, that one thing I don't have right now. And for me, I really put my dad in that place. And, you know, any dissatisfaction I had or unhappiness I had, I really pinned it all on my dad. Um, On the other hand, you know, I do think my dad and I had some similar um, personality traits. You know, there was something about us that was kindred. And I also write in the book about how I just always was drawn to sort of this big life, you know, big cities, big ideas, books and art and culture. And I always knew I wanted to go live in the city. And because my dad was in Boston, I really thought, well, if I could go to the city and be with him, that would be much more the life that I want. And I mean from, like, a small age. Like, I wanted to get my own apartment when I was 11. I thought that that would be a good solution for
0: everyone. <laughs> but what you did, um, uh, it's interesting you should say that. So, there was, you know, you wanted to do what Dad did, but you did it, but you followed through with everything. Yeah. You know, you went to the city, you've published books, you yeah. uh, are responsible, you take things you know, it's not just that you have the talent, and maybe he had the talent, but what did he actually do with his talent? So you've kind of, like, taken that talent or and the similarities you have with him, but you've gone ahead and, and done it. You, you did what he couldn't do or didn't do. Well, that's do. true, and, I mean, I
1: think when I was younger, as I've already said, you know, I did romanticize my dad, and I did think more highly of the sort of um, – artistic tendencies a person might have and I, I knew very early on I wanted to be a writer and uh, I knew my father was really into the beat writers and, and into poetry and so I really again elevated all of that in my consciousness And then it was sort of funny, as I started working as a writer, and particularly as a daily journalist and a music critic, I realized that it was so much of what I had actually gotten from my mother and stepfather in the day-to-day that helped me as a writer. Because, of course, you need imagination, but you also need discipline. And so many writers who don't make it, who don't publish, it's because they don't have that discipline to go to the page every day. And I had really grown up essentially, as you said, on a working farm. I mean, we weren't growing all of our food, but we really had daily tasks, you know, to keep ourselves warm, to keep the homestead up and running. And so I think it was sort of the perfect balance, although at the time I didn't see it that way. But I I definitely am very grateful for um, the discipline that I got from my mother and stepfather and the way that they raised me.
0: Well, was that an aha aha moment or was that therapy or is that just growing up or when did that happen when you had to take a look and say hey yeah you know this focus and diligence and and follow-through and all of that came from my mother and came from living in the environment that she provided for me so when did that happen and how did it happen did it evolve or you or or um you know talk to us about that
1: Well, I really think it happened probably in my mid-20s when I was working in Boston as a journalist uh, for the Boston Globe, and um, I had to produce a tremendous amount of writing every week, and up until that point, I had always wanted to be a writer and tried to be a writer. You know, I had studied it in school. I had written some short stories, um, but I had trouble, as many, many people do, just finding the way to just... Make myself do it, and i didn't understand how do you be a writer you know what is what do you need do you have to go to Paris and live in a garret? do you have to you know <laughs> drink a lot of coffee what is it and I was actually writing you know not uh, original creative content but you know, criticism and um, and reporting, and I realized that a lot of my friends who wanted to be writers weren't. They weren't finding that discipline, and I was sort of like, wow, like how do I make myself do this every day? And partly it was so I didn't starve because I got paid per piece, and so I had to produce a lot um, to pay my rent. But also, it, it was when I said, ah, oh, you know, a lot of this came from those chores I didn't like doing when I was little. <laughs>
0: So, now you you go okay you're going back and forth between Los Angeles and Brooklyn now right as a what
1: are you Um that is true I um spend most of my time in Los Angeles but I did um Go to Brooklyn. Uh, when I wrote the book, I actually wrote the entire thing in Brooklyn. And um, as a celebrity ghostwriter, I do go where the work is. And so New York and Los Angeles are the primary, uh, you know, centers
0: of celebrity. I guess you might say. Um, oh, so what celebrity? I have a we're talking about celebrity celebrities, big times. Tell us about that. What big time celebrities you're talking about? So they want to write a biography or an autobiography. You write it with them, or you write it? What do yeah, you do?
1: exactly. Um, this started to happen for me in, like, the late 2000s, like 2008, 2009. All the journalism I had been doing was sort of drying up because I did write primarily for newspapers, and as we know, that was a pretty desperate time for newspapers. Um, and I had the opportunity to ghostwrite a book or co-write a book, and um, I thought, I'll try this. You know, this is interesting. I've always wanted to write books. Like, let's see what this is like um and i happen to really love it and um i guess have some affinity for it and um it really depends on the client how much of their own writing they do um some people write quite a bit for their book um some people prefer to tell me the story verbally and then i craft it into uh you know a narrative with um uh, drama and uh resolution and all of the things that go into a good story but um these days, there's a lot of different kinds of celebrities. There's movie stars, but there's also a lot of reality TV stars and all different sorts of people. So my clients are really buried.
0: So they know. They want to write their book. They go to Sarah Tomlinson and <laughs> write the book. Hopefully.
1: We'd <laughs> like it to be that way. <laughs> and
0: I was always curious as to how that was done. That's why I'm asking you. But it's like yeah. you say, the, the different way of doing it. They can actually just talk you through it and then you actually write it. Or if they have certain writing skills, they can write it or write it with you? in. Well, is it, like I said, it does depend. It, but it
1: is interesting because, you know,
0: uh, anecdotally, when I'm sort
1: of out in the world and I talk about my job, a lot of people are very dismissive of celebrities and say, oh, well, they could never write a book or, you know, they're probably dumb. But the thing is, writing a book is hard. And um, so a lot of celebrities aren't drawn to do it. You know, they make a fragrance instead or they – open a restaurant. And and most of the celebrities who do actually want to write a book have something to say. You know, a lot of them have struggled with substance abuse or domestic abuse, or they've really come from nothing to kind of be at the top of their field. And so um, many of them have come to me at the beginning of the process and sort of humbly said, well, you know, I wrote down these few pages about you know, the thing that happened when I was little or, you know, the moment I made it, you know, would you mind looking at it? And it's always got that um, that energy that comes from someone really wanting to share their story. And um, the bulk of the work is done, though, through uh, interviews. So I have a digital recorder I use, and we sit for hours, really, and they tell me their whole life story. And we start to look for um, patterns, and we start to look for um, – you know through lines and um, maybe lessons from the story that they've they've learned or that they might want to share with people um, and it's a really gratifying process and and really a gratifying job to have
0: Sarah do you, you ever turn anybody down i mean is, let's say you interview them I'm assuming you interview them first before obviously before you in, negotiate what you're going to do uh, but do you ever say this is like a boring story. I don't think this is going to work. I mean, you may think you have an interesting story to tell, but you really don't.
1: No, I've never turned (laughs) someone down for that reason. Um, It is sometimes um, there's a need to, you know, someone might want to write a book very, very quickly. And I have done that, um, you know, say for like a reality TV star who needs a book written, you know, before their show finishes the season. Um, But if it's, uh, sort of in, a person in the culture who hasn't sold their book yet, and they sort of have this idea, like maybe they've started a business, and they say, oh, "I want to write a book about my experience." You know, sometimes it's a little bit harder to come into the process um, if the book hasn't been sold yet, and and so it, basically, the t- only times I've said no is if I didn't feel like I was able to really deliver on what their expectations were for the project. But I find. Most, as I said, most people who are drawn to, to write a book have, have something to say. Although, you well, know. What are
0: the most interesting books for you? I mean, look um, so you're saying you really turn them down. It's like if the time frame doesn't work for you or it's too, fa- you know, it just isn't, the project just is not in the right, you know, not the right time for you to do it. But, so what's like the most interesting topics for you or, and also the most difficult for you to write because isn't, you know, I mean, it would seem to me that some of these the stories of celebrities and what they're doing are much more interesting to you as a writer than others. And Yeah, that's definitely
1: true. I mean, it's funny because I've always been drawn to father-daughter stories, even before I wrote mine, <laughs> uh, and, and also family stories. Um, I had one client um, who actually wrote her own book. She's a very talented writer, but she uh, was after she sold her book, she brought me in, uh, in conjunction with her publisher to edit the book for her, to really work with her week by week as she finished every chapter. She sent it to me, and we, we talked about, you know, what makes a good scene, what makes, um, the book dramatic. And, uh, her name is Jenny Ketchum, and she wrote a book called I Am Jenny, and she had, been a uh, porn star, basically, and uh, had had some substance abuse issues, and then had gotten sober and, and gotten out of pornography, and was really just struggling to find her voice to figure out who she was. Um, she had a very complicated relationship with her dad, but, but sort of like my story, there was no abuse. there was no um, There was no really dark secret that you would point to, you know, and so she also was sort of wondering, well, how did I get here? You know, like, it it wasn't the most horrible story. It wasn't, um, that bad, and yet she had been really marked by her childhood and had really had to struggle to, to find herself and to become an adult in a way that many people don't, and so I was really drawn to her book. I did that, um, project before I had even known I would write a book about my dad, and, um, you know, I've talked about this that I was so impressed by her capacity for forgiveness and her humility in terms of the uh, respect she showed to the people in her life as she wrote about them and uh, was really, really trying to understand how she had ended up where she had and, and how she could be a better person and, and make an impact on the world. And so I, I felt really grateful to have worked on that project
0: with her. <laughs> It's that you identified with her, obviously. It sounds very, you know, that you, uh, you're in similar situations. But, you know, you just said, I did, and, you
1: know, she yes. had acted out in a more dramatic way than I ever had. But it's interesting. <laughs> well, you didn't because, become uh, a
0: porn star. I didn't become a
1: porn star, <laughs> but, you know, I did, as I, I write in the book, I, I did become sort of a wild child for a while in my 20s, and I really had debated whether or not I wanted to include that, you know, if I was comfortable putting that out in the public, and I really felt like I had to, like, it was an essential part of my story. And and I have also found that, that often young women who don't have great self-esteem, who don't have great boundaries, often because they haven't had a relationship with their dad or they've had a troubled one, um, struggle with the same things. And so I thought, well, the only way this book is going to be of service to people is if I'm really honest and I talk about, you know, where this behavior led me.
0: Do you think... Sarah, you the word abuse. You mentioned that you know that this other uh, this other woman, this other uh, writer who wanted you to write her her, uh, her memoir or her book um, didn't suffer from abuse. But do you at what point? Like you know, I was thinking about that. Like your father, you loved him unconditionally, but he constantly disappointed you. At what point does that become emotional abuse? Not physical abuse, but emotional abuse.
1: Well, it is an interesting question, and again, I think that's partly why I hope that my book will be useful to people and will generate some good conversation, because I think I always felt guilty or, or felt ashamed of how much difficulty I was having, because I got into my 20s, into my 30s, and I was really struggling. I was kind of emotionally immature, I was, um, you know, I had accomplished a lot and traveled around the world and had, you know, done a lot with my writing, but I was really struggling with my romantic relationships with a lot of my interpersonal stuff. And people would say, well, you're educated and like, you don't have a second head growing out of your forehead. Like what, you know, (laughs) what's wrong with you basically? and, And I didn't know. And so I'd like to kind of share that, that it is a trauma that is suffered by a child and that it does have consequences and it doesn't have to be physical abuse or, you know, real abandonment with, like, no food in the fridge, you know, really horrific experiences that we do hear about sometimes to to actually leave a scar in the child,
0: unfortunately. And I I think sometimes, I mean, that those... I'm calling it subtle abuse that happens over time but does build up, and as you say, then it does impact your behavior, and you're not yeah. really sure where it's coming from. It's much easier if it's physical. I mean, you know if, 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 if physical is very obvious, but that kind right. of insidious emotional abuse is sometimes, unless you have some self-awareness or are able to achieve self-awareness, you don't really know where it's coming from.
1: Exactly, and that's an interesting point as well because, you know, as I, I write in the book, I, I try to be very sympathetic to my father and the roots of where his own problems came from. And he you know, had a very traumatic childhood, was taken away from his mother when he was three. She was put in prison for child neglect because she was such a bad alcoholic. He grew up in foster care until he was 10. And then she got sober and got him back. But even at that point, they had a very complicated relationship. And you know, he was kicked out of school in the ninth grade for truancy. I mean, he just sort of never had a grounding, you know, never had a steady family life that, um, gave him self-esteem or gave him a sense of worth or boundaries. And so, you know, I was really lucky in that I did have, um, a loving mother and stepfather. And so there was someone there to provide me with, um, you know, some stability and some, um, love and affection. And my dad really didn't have that. And so, um, you know, I do think that. Unfortunately, I came from this sort of multi-generational um, emotional abyss, or whatever you want to call it, and, and I've heard that again from other people who have who have gone through a childhood like this. That it that it did come out of you know multiple generations of trouble in their family tree, um, and you know, I. I certainly don't blame everything on my dad. I mean, that was a huge part of writing this book, too, was taking ownership of my own behavior and and certainly getting to a point where I'm responsible for the interactions I have with him now. I'm responsible for the way that I live my life and the choices that I make. But I do think that, you know, acknowledging uh, the cost of, you know, his behavior when I was little has been very healing for me and, and very helpful.
0: Or well, were you afraid that you were, given that you had some similar talents as he and identifying with him in certain ways, were you ever afraid, I'm going to end up like him? I mean, was that kind of a motivation or an impetus for the success that you've had and the ability to ground yourself and be focused and accomplish what you've accomplished?
1: I think I did have that fear at some times. I mean, being a writer is really a long game. You know, it's something that takes years to get good at and then, you know, year even longer after that to to publish or to to get any success or recognition, and so there were definitely many years when I was actively working at my writing and not seeing any results, and I sort of worried that I would have a lack of um, follow-through like my dad had, but, you know, it's interesting because my success kind of had a darker side that was in relationship to my dad, which was that I really grew up with this idea that if I could just be smart enough and just be sweet enough and just be a good enough girl, you know, be a good girl, which is where the title comes from, that my dad would come back to me. And, um, you know, it did manifest itself in perfectionism, in eating disorder. You know, I was anorexic when I was in college, still have issues around food, unfortunately, to this day. You know, I've done a lot of work with it, but it's, it's that sort of desire for control, right? And the, the body is a thing that women often feel like they need to control when they're having, uh, you know, emotional um, insecurities. And so I, I kind of joke sometimes that, um, you know, I was like a workaholic. Um, and, and it's like we, we celebrate that in our culture to a certain extent, but that for me, that was like the hardest thing to overcome was my perfectionism. You know, there are points in the book where I sort of look at my drinking, which was very heavy in my twenties. Um, you know, look at some issues I had around depression and sort of wonder, you know, am I depressed? Am I an alcoholic? And I'm not, I'm a perfectionist and it leads to a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of, um, you know, isolation in in my tendency to take on too much work, to, you know, really set very high standards for myself, very um, difficult goals, and that has been probably the most challenging and the most rewarding part of the process has been to try to um, let go of my perfectionism and actually be okay with things being
0: a work in progress,
1: you know, for the rest of my life, basically.
0: Uh, well, that kind of leads into the next question i guess you know yeah. the good girl you're and, and that's typical too i don't want to say i mean I think that a lot of uh particularly women have that you know when they have the kind yeah. of relationship you had with your father well if i'm i' I'm, I'm, you know i 'm just not good enough, but if i 'm good enough he's yep. going to love me and respect me and um and, and I think that that's kind of, that is a theme so yes. what when you finished the book, mm-hmm. was there this kind of cathartic i don 't have to be the good girl anymore or was, is or this is like sort of kind of the culmination of all of this good girl stuff that I don't have to do anymore with writing the book part of that or finishing the book, that part of that process?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think, as a lot of us do, I always knew that these issues were a problem for me, and I always knew that I was going to have to address them Somehow in my life. But I think it was easy before the book to get busy with other things, you know, particularly with my work deadlines. I mean, being a writer, you always have these deadlines you have to hit. And so I would have something come up around my dad or we would have an incident that was, you know, Hard for me, and then I would say, "Oh, I've got this work deadline." You know, I would I would put it out of my mind. I was very compartmentalized, and with the book, I couldn't turn away anymore. This was my job um, for you know the year that I worked on the book to look at all of this and to be really honest. And I think once I put down on paper for the world to see some of my um, you know growing pains, some of the less attractive. Um, sides of my personality that I, um, you know, was troubled by when I was younger. Um, It made me acknowledge that I don't have to be perfect. You know, the world didn't end. People still love me. Um, You know, I still have a career. Um, And that was incredibly cathartic. Um, And then, you know, the other thing I've been really vocal about uh, since publishing the book uh, because it's been very difficult for me, but I think it's important to talk about is, you know, one of the things that finally forced me to push my father off the pedestal and uh, interact with him not as a fantasy but as a real person was um, his cancer diagnosis in 2011. And as much as I love my dad and forgive him and really have a lot of empathy for this. Scary diagnosis of cancer that he's been given, he was really trying to use his cancer to manipulate me, and it just wasn't acceptable. I just couldn't handle it. You know, I just wasn't going to allow that to be where our relationship went, especially at a time when we needed to clean house and really make sure our relationship was where we wanted it to be, you know, when his life does end, which hopefully won't be for, you know, 10 or 20 years. I mean, he has prostate cancer. Many men live with prostate cancer, you know, for a long time. And so I'm optimistic for his health, but I just had to stand up for myself. Finally, I couldn't, I couldn't let him behave in that way. And um, it's hard because I think I feel like a monster sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, your parent has cancer and you're pushing back on them. But I think, That's something we need to talk about as a culture is, you know, just because someone is ill, um, it doesn't take them away from all responsibilities for the relationships that they have in their life, you know.
0: And that perhaps could be, we have only a minute left, but Mm -hmm. but that's a topic, you know, that's another book. This is the, that's another. Uh, topic for, for another book or another memoir. Um, that's a great idea. Because I think yeah. it's, it's true, it's uncomfortable, and
1: that's what makes great memoir, are the things that are so human, you kind of realize, wow, that probably means I'm not the only one feeling this. You know, if this feels this uncomfortable for me, then there's probably someone else who's going through this right now and who would benefit from a conversation about it. Absolutely,
0: and a book from you, Sarah Tomlinson. <laughs> hopefully. Well, thank you so much. For and I'm going to mention it hopefully. again because we do, We literally we have about 45 seconds, so it's Sarah Tomlinson. You've got to get the book, Good Girl, a memoir, bookstores everywhere, online, and there are just uh, uh, just a website we can go to as well.
1: Oh, sure. It's uh SarahTomlinson.com, that's S-A-R-A-H, T-O-M. L-I-N-S-O-N dot com, and you can also follow me on Twitter as Duchess of Rock, which goes back to my rock journalism days, and um, I put up lots of updates there about my appearances and articles I've written,
0: um, essays, and that sort of thing. Great. It was a real treat and a pleasure interviewing you today thanks so oh, much thank for being so on the much. show what a great conversation yeah. yeah a great conversation good girl a memoir sarah tomlinson we're saying goodbye i'm katherine zox your social worker with a microphone uh, you're listening to the katherine zox show on voiceamericavariety.com world talk radio have a great week and we'll see you next wednesday we hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the katherine
1: zox show You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America
0: channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.